You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to take a moment to welcome a new member to the SpyCast family, Blinkist. you hear more about them later, but first, let's meet our guest. We're joined today uh, in the way we do now in the era of the coronavirus remotely, uh, where I'm sitting on my couch, and Thomas Ridd, our guest today, is probably sitting at a desk somewhere in his house. Thomas is a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. His most recent books, Rise of the Machines, came out in 2016, told the sweeping story of how cybernetics, the late 1940s theory of machines, came to incite anarchy in war. And prior to that, in 2013, he published the widely read book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place. He testified on information security in front of the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as in the German Bundestag and the U.K. Parliament. From 2011 to 2016, Ridd was a professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And between 20, 2003 and 2010, he worked at a major think tanks in Berlin, Paris, Jerusalem, and Washington, D.C. His newest book, Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare, has just come out. Actually, if you're listening to this the day we posted, it's just come out today. So if you're looking for your next quarantine book, here it is. And it's a hefty book. I'll take you a couple days to get through it. Uh, so it's the perfect thing to have when you can't go outside and do anything else. So welcome, Thomas. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Hi, Vince. Thank you so much for the intro. So in some cases, this book is a bit of a departure from your previous work, which is more technology-based, more cyber-based. Why did you choose to write about disinformation? Why is now the time to write this book? We're not all that separated from what most people look at as kind of the, the crown jewel of disinformation in 2016. So are we separated enough? And why is now the right time? Yeah, so in my mind, the, um, the, the way cyber operations have evolved is, I have this punchline that I sometimes use in teaching. You can't understand cyber operations in the 21st century without first understanding intelligence operations in the 20th century. So what that means is really that we're discovering only now in 2016, the election interference is the perfect example. We're only discovering now that a lot of the operations that we see take place 
you know, through computers, through online on the internet, um, are in fact just continuations of age-old intelligence uh, operations. And in this book, I'm focusing on one specific uh, brand and one specific strain, and that is a subset of COVID action, which the Soviets in the 60s started describing as active measures. I think it's quite a powerful term and useful term. So that's why I call the book Active Measures. I think that's interesting because there is kind of different modes of thought about cyber. One is that it's this new transformative technology that's a paradigm shifter that's going to make the world different in so many different ways. Another, particularly when you talk about intelligence, is that it's just a tool to change the way we've done the same things we've done in the past. And you seem to be coming down on that latter point. Yeah, I think the debate is shifting. I mean, initially in the 1990s, there was this all this talk about uh, cyber being a new form of war, and it was often discussed in a military context. I think that you know the base basically has stopped, uh, and today we discuss uh, cyber operations very much in an intelligence context. Attribution is done by intelligence agencies, um, and it's. Uh, it's often they, they talk they find operations that are executed by other intelligence agencies and of course by criminal groups not so much military uh, operations so the book you called active measures so let's let's not get too far into this without starting to define that because you did a good job i would argue in the beginning of the book kind of laying out what active measures are so for even the initiated right because the, you know there's certainly a lot of our audience that have heard that term and some people have you know dealt directly with either Soviet or Russian active measures. Let's make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to what are active measures. Yeah. So let me first say something important because I know you're, a lot of your listenership is, is a prof group of professionals. The term active measures was around only for a limited amount of time. It began to emerge in the, in the early 60s and then it ceased uh, in, 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 in terms of in, in, among practitioners, and it stopped being used in the late 80s, at, by, by, at the end of the Cold War. But for a number of reasons, the term is, is helpful. Um, so early in the 1960s, why did it emerge in the first place? Not, a, not an easy, uh, easy question to answer, but I think it emerged because initially the term was disinformation. And soon it became clear to Eastern Bloc intelligence agencies that the term disinformation is, is not particularly helpful for running these operations bureaucratically to communicate what they actually do or really to describe what's going on. Because they discovered that the best influence operations or CIA at the time called it uh, political warfare in the, in the 50s or uh, psychological warfare. So political warfare worked best if you had a, a a clever mix of truth, of facts and lies, if you like, um, a, a clever mix of useful, of, of accurate information and and wrongful information to deceive and to drive wedges, or in some cases having completely accurate information, no real disinformation in there. So moving towards active measures, I think, helps to understand that what makes active measures active is that they tap into an emotional effect, into pre-existing prejudices and views that it then cleverly uh, amplifies. 
Well, like you talk about the fact that some of the best in history were designed to deliver accurate information, like lynchings in the 1960s, like trying to, to take a wedge that already existed, meaning the American civil rights issue, and drive it apart even farther. I mean, 2016 was full of those opportunities where the yeah. Russians were able to not invent new kind of friction, you know, frictions in the United States, but to identify them and then to make them even wider. Absolutely. So the, the, the best raw material for active measures is our existing contradictions in their own terminology, our, our existing frictions and disagreements within a specific, you know, society or culture. I think to me, the paradigmatic example here, the most, most stunning one in many ways, is the, an operation that began in, uh, on, Christmas, uh, on Christmas Day 1959 in uh, Cologne in Germany, where KGB uh, stooges or people that KGB uh, instigated and hired to do, to do that um, smeared anti-Semitic um, graffiti, you know, swastikas and Jews out at the walls of the newly reopened uh, synagogue in Cologne. Adenau had just opened it two months earlier. Again, after this is now 19, uh, excuse me, um, 59. So this is only 14 years after the Holocaust. Um, and of course, huge event in Germany and having anti-Semitism pop up there um, in such a symbolic place uh, achieved something extraordinary. It achieved uh, that this wound reopened and actual anti-Semitism, which obviously was still a problem in, in Germany at the time and still is a problem today, um, was, was, was rising in response to this, to this fake, to this forgery, if you like. So these are the best forgeries that very quickly blend into existing uh, emotional prejudice and biases and, and, and reality. And very quickly, it becomes practically impossible to distinguish what is, what is real and what is fake. I think one of the most important points that you make is the first one you make when describing what is and isn't active measures, particularly today, when so much of what politicians say is on TV, and it's somewhat spontaneous. I'm not naming any names. Um, <laughs> but but the active measures, disinformation, what we're talking about here, are not spontaneous lies, not leaders just saying things or, or governments just saying things, but really kind of this is methodical. This is something that is done by intelligence agencies on purpose with a plan in mind. Yeah, thank you for, for uh, making that extremely important observation. The, this is why the book begins in the interwar period with the rise of sort of modern bureaucracies that are focused on intelligence operations. I'm not talking about just lies uh, in the book or, you know, just information that organically emerges conspiracy theories. I'm talking about exclusively talking about intelligence agencies planning, uh, sometimes with a sophisticated detailed proposal process, you know, funding, organizing, evaluating, running these operations um, at scale over a long period of time. And um, yeah. And that's, that's the beginning. And I think that in, another interesting distinction that you make is that this is not just intelligence agencies throwing stuff on a wall and seeing what sticks. This is not just intelligence agencies trying to create chaos as a lot of people have looked at 2016. There's an end, right? There, there, there's a strategic purpose to this. 
that is set out beforehand. There, there, there's a reason for doing these active measures. Yes, indeed. I mean, one of the things that I spent uh, really most of the past three years doing was reading case files, reading project files. Um, we have several major operations that are documented in absolutely extraordinary detail. I think perhaps the best documented operation is um, uh, is Operation Neptune, the famous lake drop of Nazi documents in 1964 done by the Czechs. The case files for that operation that, that have been released um, by Czech state security archives are 2,800 pages. Uh, other case files, for example, there was a major CIA front in Berlin known as the cryptonym was Elsie Kassock uh, in the 1950s, operated for 10 years um, approximately. The case files for that is oper uh, operation is approximately 1,200 pages, highly detailed material. And in there, you can, of course, also understand why they did it. You can see how rationale shifted over time. You can see how the initial proposed rationale may be slightly different from the final justification to you know their political masters. Um, so that is an extremely important historical lesson because today, obviously, we don't have access to those memos that articulate the purpose. One of the interesting distinctions that you, you point out uh, when it comes to active measures or disinformation campaigns broadly is the difference in how effective they are and how they affect the country between let's call them authoritarian states or um, you know single party states versus liberal democracies and how active measures can have, I, I look at it as like almost a double whammy when it comes to liberal democracies, not only are we an easier target uh, that you know we can undermine institutions much easier in a liberal democracy, but when we start doing it ourselves, that can have huge impacts on us moving forward. Yeah. So uh, you know, one of the questions that I always um, that I got a lot a lot in response to some of my work in 2016 on the Russian election interference, a lot of people. Uh, often actually on the left, but not only on the left, also on the far right, we're saying, well, aren't we doing just the same thing? Um, so isn't isn't this isn't this just is, isn't everybody doing this, meaning doing disinformation and influence operations? So I said, okay, if I write this book, I really have to tackle this argument in a historically informed way. And so I looked at CIA operations that could be described as disinformation or active measures. They, they did not describe those in those terms themselves, but effectively did some of the same, same things. And the curious thing is the CIA was pretty good at this, arguably for a while even better than KGB in the 1950s, in Berlin especially. Um, and uh, I'm describing this absolutely extraordinary operation uh, that I just hinted at, Elsie Kassock this front organization that was run by a former uh, Nazi, former Wehrmacht uh, commander. Um, his, his name was Karl-Heinz Marbach. And uh, the story is just told exclusively, almost exclusively on the basis of CIA uh, files. Nobody has mentioned that case in public before. The story is absolutely stunning. I can, it's probably my favorite chapter. Um, but it's also stunning because CIA stopped doing that kind of thing by the mid-1960s sort of really retreated quite quite drastically from the political warfare battlefield. And uh, it's hard to explain in hindsight why that happened, 
Um, and uh, But I think an important component was that in the United States, democracy is maturing in response to uh, you know, intelligence scandals and overreach. Uh, Watergate, obviously, a little later comes to mind here. Oversight improvement, the Church Commission. And as democracy and oversight was improving, um, uh, CIA retreated from really what de facto was disinformation. So basically, bottom punchline here is, bottom line is, you can't excel at democracy and disinformation at the same time. What's interesting is that the disinformation programs that CIA ran weren't just kind of throwaways where you stuck some, you know, bottom of the barrel case officer running. I mean, Bill Harvey ran some of these operations. I mean, this was that, you know, the Department of Plans under under Wisner, and these were some of the top people at CIA of doing operations overseas that were involved directly. Especially, I mean, the LC Kasich is was Bill Harvey. I mean, Bill Harvey arguably would be in the top three or four most famous slash notorious CIA operations officers in history. And he was intimately involved in these disinformation programs. Yes, and, and I want to stress that I'm trying to be as careful as possible and not describe, I, I'm not calling it, I'm, this was political warfare in CIA's own terminology. Um, and um, it, it is, it's remarkable for a number of, of, of reasons. The, the way CIA ran these operations was heavily reliant on German local staff, uh, principal agents. I mentioned this one uh, person, Marbach, the former Wehrmacht, Wehrmacht guy. He, um, he was pretty good at what he, what he was doing. So what you see there in the, in the CIA case files is a pretty sophisticated, uh, pretty high level of sophistication, great tradecraft. For example, they realized, CIA realized that partial exposure of this operation, meaning rumors in the German press going around in the 50s of this being a CIA funded front group, actually another one, but let's just keep it simple, um, that these rumors were a good thing because it meant that the risk of full exposure by the adversary, by Stasi or KGB was lower. So basically partial exposure is better than no exposure, which is really an extraordinary sort of realization to have. And, uh, and I think what we also can learn from these CIA operations is really how bad some of the operations are that we are encountering today. Um, uh, and also how difficult it is to measure effect of these operations. Um, but that's a complete separate conversation. Well, but that's an important one. So let's talk, I mean, the idea, obviously 2016 we'll get to, but that there is an end game where you can kind of assess victory or failure. You don't know how well your program did, but at least there is an end point when it comes to the 2016 case because there's an election. You can see who wins and who loses. Some of these programs were just trying to change opinion and trying to get people on one side or another when it comes to the Cold War. I mean, you talk about L.C. Kasich, this is essentially a forgery factory so that people understand where they're making magazines, newspapers, brochures, pamphlets that are just being spread all over the place with both real and fake information. I don't know how you gauge how well that's doing or not. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very hard problem. So in fact, I just reread my Elsie Kassock chapter to prepare for this conversation with you uh, an hour ago. And I, I was struck by how, um, how, how, little how little judgment I pass 
Um, and I think I wanted to just make clear why I am not passing judgment in that chapter at all. I think it's the 1960s, early 60s, late 50s, was such an extraordinary period uh, in terms of the boundless ambitions that people had. Just think about the space race, the early space race, that I think we just have to be very careful to pass judgment from our today, from today's somewhat more cynical, cynical perspective. So at the time, they, they had extraordinary ambitions for their psychological warfare operations. And uh, the way they tried to measure CIA, tried to measure effect was to, by um, very carefully cultivating, as they call it, responses from readers of their fake magazines uh, to engage with people in East Germany, but also in Poland and Czechoslovakia, even Russia directly to have sort of correspondence by mail with them. And, and get some feedback uh, through, you know, letters to the editor and that kind of thing. We'll have more with Thomas in a moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about Blinkist, one of the ultimate life hacks. It's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more. When you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development. There's an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist is made for busy people like us who want to get to the main points of the book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute, on your lunch break, or while you exercise. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now and has a massive and growing library. From self-help, business, health to history books, Blinkist has the latest titles from the bestseller lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. Look, I read a ton of books for my job. Many of you out there spend your entire day reading for work. When I finally have time to read, for me, I want it to count. I like Blinkist because it gives me the main points of a book, which helps me evaluate which books I want to make time to read in full later on. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com spycast to try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com spycast to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash SpyCast. Let me ask you this. Chronologically, you, you start uh, with the, the Bolshevik Revolution around that time period with the trust with, you know, under Felix Rzinski, kind of showing how this kind of gives the Soviets a roadmap for future operations. Um, why did you avoid World War II in disinformation operations? Has it just been written, too much of it's been written about already? Or are you kind of staying within the peacetime operation? Yeah, it's a great question. And it was a difficult decision to make. Uh, and you basically hit the nail on the head in, with the two strikes that I, that I, that I also applied. First, the, it's well-trodden terrain, uh, military deception during World War II. Um, and military, so I couldn't add that much fresh uh, value here, I think. And secondly, military deception, so if you like disinformation during wartime, 
is a very different beast from uh, from uh, these types of semi-covert intelligence operations designed to deceive during peacetime. I mean, I mean, you would have to have you'd have a three thousand page book if you had included yeah. wartime operate. I mean, just I mean, Vietnam is another great example of of where disinformation and, and propaganda plays a huge role. One of my favorite sections of the book is about books. I kind of kind of call it the battle of the books. I think you even use that phrase where you're looking at, you know, the Penkovsky papers and who's who. And, you know, one of the, the old spy museum, one of the first things you saw when you went into the first room when you went up the elevator was that who's who at CIA mm -hmm. and kind of how it affected real life. Uh, in some cases, some people were kidnapped who weren't CIA officers because they kind of made things up. But you have obviously the case of like a Richard Welch who was targeted and assassinated because of that book. Talk a little bit about that back and forth. I mean, Penkovsky paper story is pretty extraordinary and how the Washington Post, you can't imagine them doing this today, how the Washington Post is either willing or unwilling part of American disinformation. Yeah, so th this is indeed it is absolutely fascinating to have these books that come out and that in fact are intelligence operations. And there are so many, I could, I could only make a, you know, I had often had this experience. I was reading material from, especially the Bulgarian state security archives from KGB. And I would translate a specific book title. I'm like, surely I can pull up this book. And uh, so here, uh, here it was, I Googled the book, uh, find a review of this book in the Washington Post. And of course, nobody realized that it was actually a fake KGB memoir, not a real memoir. That kind of thing happened all the time. But the most extraordinary back and forth, I think, concerns the leak of names of intelligence uh, personnel. Um, in the book, The Who is Who in CIA, you mentioned that uh, famous uh, joint KGB Stasi STB operation um, that revealed the names of uh, close to 3,000 um, US intelligence uh, officers. Of course, not. All of them, in fact, probably the majority of them were not actually intelligence officers, but just uh, described as such, deliberately so. So it was a mix of, again, truth and facts and, and forgery that made this book a success. And then, of course, CIA retaliating um, also in a joint operation, uh, if you like, um, with this, uh, uh, um, with the Pinkowski papers at some point, but later on with the um, Sorry, not with the Pinkowski papers, later with a book by John Barron um, that just is titled KGB, which also includes a long appendix with names of Russian intelligence officers. So um, that is a fascinating back and forth that continued even beyond the end of the Cold War. And that is what, something that I think hasn't been publicly covered. But um, Stasi, especially in with support from KGB and later most likely SVR in 1997, the last time, uh, published books that included names of American intelligence personnel along with just diplomats to harm them in practice. Uh, the most recent one, and I have that in the book as well, is called um, uh, Headquarters Germany in English and has a fat spider on the reunited Germany representing CIA. Um, is, the book is extraordinary because it was done by two former HVA Stasi foreign intelligence uh, intelligence officers who were specialists in American intelligence operations. And then suddenly seven years after their organization ceased to exist, 
they uh, come out with this extremely detailed book uh, that is up to date to 1997 um, in terms of the names that it releases and they just pretend that they wrote all this from memory um. <laughs> We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash AI. There's a, I'm laughing not only because of that, but also as I'm transitioning to it. There's a chapter in this book that should be for, forced reading for every uh, first year history grad student on Halloween to make them terrified of their lives ahead of them. And that's a, a section that really talks about forged documents, forged secret national security documents like Op Plan 10-1 and FM 3031B. These brilliant forged documents by mostly the KGB uh, that look real, they seem real, they're about US, you know, nuclear weapons planning during the Cold War, and they're a exceptionally smart use of disinformation, in particular aimed at the United States where it's impossible for the Americans to say what parts are real and what parts aren't because of classification issues. Absolutely, extraordinary, yeah. I mean, the story both, Documents are very different. Field Manual 3031B is a complete forgery, um, a forged, a forged uh, version of an appendix to an existing field manual, and um, and then the other one, the war, the Operations Plan 10-1, is actually mostly it appears real. Um, not it appears we we know for a fact mostly based on real uh, files, but with a few pages that are forged slipped in. And it becomes extremely difficult uh, to 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 tell what is forced and what is real because nobody uh, who can talk about it wants to talk wants to touch it. There's this most entertaining detail, by the way, um, where the U.S. Army responds to a FOIA request and uh, declassifies a document that was never classified, a fake top secret uh, Russian that's Field Manual 3031B. Just declassifies the fake, uh, you know, classification headers, <laughs> which uh, I just loved. Well, but if I'm uh, sorry, these aren't just kind of very benign documents. These are talking about a U.S. war plan, essentially flattening Europe in a nuclear war and targeting of Western German uh, sites and cities. And then FM 3031B talks about creating insurgencies in some places where there aren't insurgencies to kind of get host countries to be on our side yeah so yeah let's briefly talk about operations plan 10-1 this uh, which is the uh, special forces operations plan um, that was leaked um, in the late 70s and this document is 
so a CIA declassified document, um, you know, it's in the Crest archive called Global War Plan for Clandestine Operations, which nobody has picked up so far. It's an extraordinarily aggressive uh, war plan, which is part of the same family of documents that OPLAN, uh, this, this leaked document is from. It overlaps, entire paragraphs completely overlap, which is one way of finding out that it's actually real, um, the leak. And first, again, this is an early, this is a 1960s document, extremely ambitious, early 1960s. So, uh, you know, no wonder it was so controversial by the late 1970s. But the document lays out how US uh, special operators would um, operate behind enemy lines in the case of a of a Soviet invasion of the Red Army across the Falder Gap. And as you would expect, there's some pretty brutal detail in there, like pouring chemical agents into the Rhine Mine River and set the river uh, rivers ablaze in order to stop uh, Soviet troops from crossing the river. That kind of thing. Of course, great material for for um, leaking in Germany, but. Uh, I'd love to share this anecdote here with you um, about how they played this leak in, in Germany. But it, the problem is, I, I just need to lay out how they did it. It will take me a moment. Is that okay, Vince? Oh, absolutely. Sounds great. So I'll, I'll, I'll be concise and brief. They had, this, they had this war plan that was mostly real, KGB, that is, and, um, and then they they relayed the document, they mailed it in, in, from Rome to two German newspapers. Uh, this was already uh, after several surfacing attempts that didn't work as planned. And they mailed it to Der Spiegel, which uh, I'm sure some listeners know is, is a high quality um, uh, weekly magazine in Germany. And they also mailed it to Der Stern, um, which is a more lowbrow uh, weekly a German news magazine, often at the time at least with nudes on the cover. So it wasn't always the best journalism in there. And Der Spiegel um, covered the story as the disinformation story. They, they, they saw through it and they turned the disinformation attempt into the story itself, which was just amazing journalism, had great sourcing, and revealed this to come from an actual American spy, this document, Robert Lee Johnson, famous uh, KGB spy. Der, uh, Der Stern, the lowbrow magazine, fell essentially for their for the KGB uh, framing trick, and just covered the story as almost exactly as KGB wanted them to cover the story, making a huge scandal out of the war plan. Um, now, that's the what happened next is the mind blowing thing. What happened next is that KGB. Now imagine you're sitting in KGB service A. Um, and you're just thinking, okay, how should I react to this thing? We've just been exposed in Germany by Der Spiegel and our source has been exposed, this uh, Robert Lee Johnson um, origin story. What should we do? And they're like, well, easy. We just uh, continue to give something to Der Stern, the, you know, the lowbrow with the nudes on the cover, because now they will know that the material is actually authentic because Der Spiegel just authenticated the, the our leak for them. They will also know it's coming from KGB, but that's okay now because uh, the material is so good that we have. So they sent them nuclear uh, targeting lists. They sent, uh, the KGB sent nuclear targeting lists to this weekly uh, magazine in Hamburg, and they continued to cover it 
knowing well, even explicitly saying that it's likely an intelligence operation and publish the material. <laughs> I, again, I mean, that's the equivalent of the New York Times, well, let's not call it the, the, the National Enquirer, being fed information directly from the Russians and knowing it and still publish it. Wait, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Uh, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to provoke you though, because the really fascinating question is, did uh, Stern, Henry Nunn was the editor-in-chief at the time, a famous journalist in Germany, did he do the right thing or not um, ethically? Because the story was extraordinary. The story was American war plans have, target, have nuclear targets on West German sites. You know, not East German sites, West German cities. Uh, sh so should they publish this or not, knowing that it's highly likely correct, but also knowing it's highly likely from KGB. Um, so they decided to publish, and I would argue, I would argue, you know, KGB already had the information, the Americans already had the information, the German government did not, that is a great story. And they turned that into a story. Yeah, I mean, if you can, if you can verify it's true, I mean, absolutely. I mean, but that's that's the problem, though, right? You can't you can't pull out the the nonsense. I mean, there could be just one sentence in there that was forged, like they did in some cases. And you, I mean, it's hard to make it a hundred percent positive that it's true. Absolutely, and it was hard for me also to write about these operations because, especially those that have classification markers. Um, in some cases, I needed to do my own research, you know, on something that happened in the 70s to find to to find the forgery. And I believe in one case, I was able to identify precisely the page that was forged um, after a lot of, you know, piecing together smaller puzzle pieces from different publications. Well, one of the things I've been looking at um, doing a lot of research on and focusing is kind of American and the world perception, particularly the American perception of nuclear weapons and nuclear power. I mean, that's kind of the primary focus of my, my studies, the history of, of nuclear intelligence, but bran branching on beyond that, looking at nuclear energy holistically. And you have several chapters in here that kind of really are right in my wheelhouse when it comes to Soviet disinformation, active measures, targeting different aspects of nuclear weapons and the nuclear movement. And one is, is I think anyone under the age of let's call it 30, may never heard the phrase neutron bomb. But there's a huge issue when it comes to, this is a huge debate in the 1980s about the neutron bomb. Uh, and come to find out, uh, it was heavily influenced by Soviet disinformation. Yeah, so the neutron, um, the neutron bomb was a, was a, a, a radiation uh, weapon, a radiation warhead that could be fired by artillery, um, grenades into enemy lines, essentially. So, you know, I mean, obviously not close range, but compared to missile, ballistic missiles, relatively close range, tactical nuclear weapon. And it was a weapon that was designed to harm um, uh, humans, to put it simply, uh, not machines. And the Soviets, of course, for them, this was the perfect capitalist weapon because it harmed uh, humans but not property. So they just turned that into a disinformation fest um, and uh, paid a lot of, uh, invested a lot of resources to, uh, to try to uh, rally the American, especially the European public, but also the American public uh, 
against uh, the deployment, development, and deployment of these uh, of these enhanced radiation weapons. And um, I think they were successful. Carter ultimately decided not to move forward with the development and deployment of these of these weapons. And these these are wonderfully one sided operations. Um, the Soviets were also thinking about neutron weapons as well, just like the Soviets, moving on to a different topic, had already deployed SS-20s to Europe, but had a full-fledged campaign to influence the peace movement in Europe against the American deployment of Pershing II missiles, which, you know, this chapter I was just laughing the whole time. I mean, it's not, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm, I'm a little weird. This is not necessarily a ha-ha laughter chapter, but for me it was. The, the the one about the peace movement um yeah, yeah there's a lot there. too, yeah so yeah to me this was a difficult chapter for me this was a difficult chapter to write and um because but a, but a really crucial one i think i even have two chapters right because it's so there were there's so much the so much both in the united states in uh, the netherlands but also between the two germanies east and west germany at the time there's great sourcing, the great material on the peace movement, um, peace war, Friedenskampf in German, in Stasi archives. Um, that's why that's why it was an interesting one to write for me personally, because I'm, uh, as you can hear, obviously I am uh, of German extraction, and the peace war chapter is so fascinating because it captures this dilemma that we have uh, that is with us still today, and that is you have a highly resourced information operation disinformation campaign trying to take advantage of an entire social movement the, the peace movement the nuclear freeze movement in this country so the question is how effective was the disinformation campaign is the peace movement authentic or not right. and of course anybody who's a member a genuine you know a uh, member of the peace uh, or nuclear freeze movement will, will say, well, of course I am authentic. Of course, I really believe this. Of course, the people I you know travel to Washington or New York with to go to demonstrations, they are real. What are you talking about? And, um, and there's this extraordinary FOIA release that I got from uh, FBI on this question. They did a report, um, which is partly covered in the press, so I requested the full thing in the uh, in the early 80s about the peace movement and its uh, soviet influence on the peace movement and they conclude it's a remarkable document very nuanced they conclude that it's impossible to assess how successful they were because you have you know a real gen generic organic powerful movement and you have an adversary investing a lot of resources to shape the movement and ultimately it's one of those examples where the two activities just mix and blend into each other to a degree that it becomes impossible to disentangle. Well, it's interesting, you know, when you expand that to the nuclear winter debate, which is a whole other chapter also, where the Soviet attempt to hijack the debate actually fails in the end. And we can actually point to where that disinformation campaign fails and falls on its face. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 uh, and, and you're right, there's so many links here to nuclear energy and nuclear weapons um it's it's fascinating probably because we are so it really touches something deep in us the fear of nuclear power because we don't really we, can, we can't see it yet it's so potentially harmful um the nuke the nuclear winter debate um 
to me here in the book illustrates just this extraordinary temptation to for an intelligence agency for KGB in this case to um, talk themselves or to really misinform themselves to to end up believing that they achieved something successfully that they didn't do in practice that's that's the story of the of the chapter they they they, they came to believe that they shaped the nuclear winter debate but if you carefully look at the debate how it's emerged and how it evolved KGB most certainly did not shape the debate well if anything they they kind of it was counterproductive because their attempt to kind of go so far over the top was seen as you know bad science and kind of ridiculous and you know a lot of people who want to push back against the nuclear winter idea point to that attempt as you know you know uh, a way to hijack the debate overall yeah absolutely yeah the, the it, and arguably it pushed back uh, it, it um it blew back became counterproductive for kgb not just because uh, because of outside um effects like the one you just hinted at people criticizing uh, them for their fake science, the Soviets, but also internally, because you know when you read these memos, when KGB communicates disinformation operations to Stasi or to the Bulgarians or even to the Czechs, we have we have many of these memos. They don't they don't they don't have two columns or something or a table where they say, okay, this is this is the truth and this is the fake part. They just say, go ahead and spread this message you know, in Greece or in Turkey or whatever. And uh, and then if you're the person receiving this in East Germany or in Sofia, you're like, okay, uh, right, okay, I'm going to do that. But but where does the fake begin? And it's a completely unclear question. So bureaucratically, what we're looking at over time here is self-disinformation. You can't run disinformation operations at scale without uh, ultimately... Uh, disinforming yourself. Well, one of the, um, when we talk about propaganda and information warfare in the New Spy Museum, one of the case studies that we have, you talk about in the book, and that's the HIV AIDS disinformation campaign, which has to be considered one of the most effective. Talk about accessing whether or not something's successful, but there's still people today in the United States who argue that AIDS was created in Fort Detrick, Maryland. Yeah, um, that's uh, obviously one of the most famous, the single most famous disinformation story from the Cold War. And um, two German researchers, uh, Christopher Nering, and, and, and actually one of them is American, but lives in Berlin, uh, uh, Doug Selvage, they did pioneering research on this case. And I heavily relied on their work, which is truly fantastic. Um, and I think one thing that they pointed out uh, first um, is that the theory there, excuse me, the campaign that AIDS is an American designed bioweapon, this lie, this disinformation campaign, was inspired by organic conspiracy theories that popped up in, um, in gay uh, circles, uh, activist circles in the United States itself. And then highly likely, and there's good evidence to believe that the K local uh, New York-based KGB officers picked up that rumor, that's their job to keep an eye on the ground there, an ear on the ground, uh, and turned it into, into, this, into this operation. Now, I will add here, because the, the operation is so well known, it was initially surfaced in, uh, 
in India in the Patriot, which was in fact a KGB-run newspaper or uh, owned um, partly-run newspaper. Um, but the initial surface in 1983 in India did not make it through, uh, make it back to the United States. It was it was a dud in India. It simply disappeared again. And in the meantime, in the United States, that conspiracy theory continued to grow independently. So by 1985, when they surfaced the same operation again uh, in Moscow that this time, and then ultimately it sort of penetrated the US and Europe from there, um, it was already well established as an organic conspiracy theory that this could be a, that AIDS could be a, a, a sort of lab-designed uh, uh, disease. So what you have is the confluence of of, a, of organic conspiracy theory and a disinformation campaign, and that's again uh, something that we see today. Well, let's talk about today. Um, it's a great segue, and we don't want to go on for two hours here. So I want to do want to get to the digital revolution because. Digital revolution obviously changed things and the way things were done. It's not just faster. It's not just easier to do. But you argue, and I, I love this phrase, you said that it makes them more active and less measured. Let's talk a little bit about that. Harder to assess. Yeah, so we often have this, uh, This, you know, we have now we have data, we have uh, impressions and click and, and unique page views and whatnot just large amounts of data. So a lot of people assume that because we have all this data, we can now, we should be in a position to clearly uh, analyze the impact of an operation. And I think that's an illusion um, because the same logic that applied already in the 1920s, namely that you take existing uh, frictions and then drive a wedge into into cracks that already exist. It's a very Leninist um, a view that it still applies today and so it becomes impossible to disentangle um, the what was the organic development from the uh, the one that you try to that, that you try to um, um, you know amplify so I what I do for example in one of my chapters is I take a cold hard look at the available data on the internet research agency the troll factory from St. Petersburg in order to find out how effective were they. Because a lot of Americans today believe that they shaped the outcome of the election, which I think is just not supported by any evidence. And it turns out that we systematically overrate the impact of the uh, troll of the of this troll factory. And let me just give you one, one anecdote uh, that perfectly captures this hubris in a way. The there was this famous ad, the um uh Jesus versus Satan arm wrestling ad, which depicts Jesus in a cartoon versus Satan. And I think the caption says, if Satan wins, Clinton wins, like to support Trump or something like that. It was an ad, a Russian IRA ad uh, on Facebook. And so the, the House uh, uh, Intelligence Committee, the Democrats at the time, um, you know, showed the ad, the New York Times publicly, uh, prominently covered it on the front page. And a lot of people remember the ad. If you look up the actual statistics, it received exactly 71 impressions before the election and 14 clicks, which is nothing. So everything that we believe about this ad was created in the conversation about disinformation, not by the actual disinformation operation. 
It's a bit like the Daisy ad from the, the Johnson campaign in 64. Uh, it only aired once and it has like this massive, huge imprint on American history. But let me, I, swaying in elections, one thing, but I, you did talk about the, the Tennessee GOP Twitter feed and the voter fraud accusations and stuff. You do start seeing the more that stuff goes out, the more inundated people are with it even if they're not directly reacting to it by voting, can, how can we possibly assess how successful that is in getting people to think a certain way who might not have otherwise? Um, yeah, so the one of the dynamics that I'm trying to highlight in the book, uh, historically as well as in this reassessment of what happened in 2016 is the role of the mainstream media of the traditional press journalists and contrary to what a lot of people assume today i think the most important vector for disinformation operations today is not social media it's still the mainstream press the the operations that had a bigger impact um were widely seen um all have to be channeled through mainstream press coverage you 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 just don't reach enough people on social media in, in a concerted, direct fashion to have sort of major impact in my perspective. I know that is a, conserv a, a controversial uh, view to take, but I just haven't seen any data that would convince me. Um, what about when something, when something that is done uh, online gets funneled into mainstream media, like the idea of Guccifer 2.0, yeah. right? This is, yeah. this is something that is created by, you know, the Russians that would not have any impact like you said if it stayed just on social media but it is magnified and amplified by social by mainstream media to the point where a huge amount of the country believes it yeah absolutely so the the uh, when i if I, so i'm pretty skeptical when it comes to the impact of the ira um i'm more convinced that the GRU component of the operation, the hacking and leaking um, of especially Podesta's, John Podesta's inbox uh, in October, but some earlier components as well, they may have had an impact. Um, but even that impact is very hard to, to measure. We, we just intuitively, by tracing and observing what happened at the time, I think it may have had a bigger impact, certainly bigger than the, than the troll farm. But here's the, here's, the, here's the dilemma. Whether the GRU uh, hacking and leaking really affected the outcome of the election, that is an unknowable fact. Right. It's just really hard to admit that, but it is ultimately an unknowable fact. We can't run an experiment to test it. It's just impossible. So because it is an unknowable fact, we can only go by, you know, we can take another cold, hard look at the data and try to approach it with a, with a, with a neutral mind um, but ultimately it's a call of judgment whether we believe that russia that russian the russian government the russian intelligence community affected the outcome of the 2016 election or not and because it is a, a, a call of judgment i think we have a vested interest in believing that they did not do that because if we collectively choose to believe that gru is responsible for President Trump, which ultimately is where this leads, then 
we have created the success that they wanted to achieve for them. This is really a constructive, constructivist nightmare that we are in. Well, let me add to that, because one of the things that you write about in this book that not a lot of non-cyber people are talking about is the shadow brokers issue. Um, and, I, and I think that, that historically people haven't looked at this as being as important a, a cog in all of this as you lay it out to be. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it really kind of hurt our opportunities to prevent, some, not prevent something like this, but to at least to mitigate the damage of something like this? Yeah. Yeah, the Shadow Brokers episode is is stunning. It's it's perhaps it's certainly one of the most damaging intelligence leaks in intelligence history, if not the most damaging. And I say this carefully and with you know careful comparison to the Snowden uh, revelations. Obviously, the Shadow Brokers. We still don't know for sure who the Shadow Brokers were, what or who was behind this operation. And I say operation deliberately, the two possibilities, either it was an insider or a group of insiders from the NSA or a contractor who leaked up, who leaked these hacking tools into the public domain repeatedly in a drip drip fashion with a very bizarre messaging attached to them, uh, blog posts making political points, um, or it was a, an intelligence operation by an adversary. And the only adversary with the, uh, skills to pull this off and the risk appetite would be Russia here. Um, ultimately, we can't, we can't answer the question, but personally I come down on the, it was an inside uh, job, um, more likely um, explanation, but again, I don't know for sure. And, uh, but the fact that so many people in the intelligence community, it appears from what I could uh, gather, um, just jump to the conclusion that we're looking at a Russian operation here based on not convincing evidence is that is in itself just the perfect snapshot of how dangerous active measures disinformation uh, operation have become because it's ultimately that's what I mean more active and less measured uh, the, the 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 belief that shadow brokers is a disinformation operation is sort of actively borrowing itself into the minds of a lot of people in and around Washington um, because they uh, it somehow confirms existing fears and beliefs that they have and as somebody who you know writing this history made me paranoid I didn't want to have disinformation in the book so I always erred on the side of um, both overstating the, the, the effect of operations and understating the effect of operations would turn me into a useful idiot. That is the dilemma. <laughs> well, let me, let me fi finish things off by asking you about kind of what's next in the, in the future. Because th this book, if you read it with the wrong attitude, is somewhat disheartening because it was very nice for some people to think that 2016 was novel, that it was something we couldn't have seen coming, that it was something that was out of the blue and we can react to it now because we now know what this information can possibly do. But you lay out a hundred years of disinformation campaigns. You'd think we would be, if not immune to this by now, you think we would have been better prepared for what we saw in 2016. And of course, even after 2016, we don't seem to be getting any better or are we? Well, I think we actually have made significant progress. Um, 
there, there are a lot of eyeballs now on disinformation. Lots of people researching it. It's becoming its its own, you know, research discipline. Um, lots of journalists are more cautious than they used to be. Not all of them. Um, so yes, we have certainly improved and are more. It's we are from a, for for a disinformation operation. We are certainly a harder target today than we were in twenty. 16. Of course, the United States today is even more polarized than it was in, in 2016. So that makes it a, an easier target at the same time. And of course, we have to be very conscious of this, um, of this problem. Um, so absolutely, I would expect more of these operations to come. Um, but again, history has a few lessons in stock. Their Spiegel, which really covered disinformation and was on the permanent lookout for being tricked by Stasi, and they were tricked a few times. Even, the, even though they were so vigilant, they occasionally fell for operations. So I think we should be mm, cognizant and clear that these operations are not as effective as a lot of people appear to think today. But at the same time, I have to understand that we most likely will fall for some of them. I mean, is over questioning now the new problem? You mentioned it with shadow brokers. The idea of are we are we knee jerking towards disinformation? I, I you think I think of fake news as being that response of saying no, this is not real, this is nonsense. That that the fake news pandemic. Let me use that word, right? I mean, it's it's so it's everywhere now. Almost seems like a reaction to this idea of disinformation. Uh, yeah, I mean, to a degree, it is. Um, but of course, the, the fake news meme. Uh, uh, and framing has been out there for a long time also independently i wouldn't overthink overthink this um ultimately i think we're looking at a at an extraordinary um opportunity today because so many of my students for example just love to learn about forensics about how to investigate a case how to get to the bottom of the facts and they're you know, the fact checking experience that I just had at Wired magazine was truly amazing. The, the amount of attention to detail that people put into stories today, young people, um, it's quite heartening. It's my job to overthink things. No, I just, <laughs> that's what I'm here Mine for. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> so the book is Active Measures, a secret history of different disinformation and political warfare. The author who's been with us now for the last hours, Thomas Ridd. Again, this, if you're listening to this the day this comes out, this book came out today. So in, get it. It's one of the books that will uh, help you get through the quarantine, but also get you ready for, for life moving forward because uh, it doesn't look like this stuff's going anywhere anytime soon. So Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate, really appreciate it. We'd like to thank Blinkist for their support of SpyCast. Remember, go to Blinkist.com slash SpyCast to try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.